Revelation chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. We come now to the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6. As we do so, we cannot forget what we have recently heard. The immediate context here is what we have just seen, what the faithful witnesses have said in verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long is the question? Well, in the very condensed timeline of Revelation, the answer is not long. How long? Not long. They're told to be patient, to wait the completion of the number of God's people, the building of God's kingdom on this earth. But the very next thing we come to, the very next thing after they're told that, 
is the day has already come. The final day. The day of judgment. And the way it's described here in our passage is the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Wrath. Lamb. To me, at least, it doesn't seem like these things exactly fit together. I've not seen a wrathful Lamb. But I think, among other things, this makes us take a closer look. When we see that something that doesn't appear at first glance to fit, it makes us want to look a little bit closer. So what is this wrath of the Lamb? And among other things, it's pointing to one of the great problems in the church, one of the great problems in the history of theology, but certainly in the contemporary situation of the church's preaching, and that is to make God one-dimensional. To only select just one attribute of God and to preach that and preach that and preach that and nothing else. Until you have a picture of God that's distorted and inaccurate. Well, you see, the problem is, and I think that this is very intentional then, the wrath of the Lamb, is to point to the fact that no one image can possibly do justice to the complexity and perfection of all of God's attributes. Yes, he is a Lamb. Praise God. Christ is a Lamb. He is a Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He was the lamb who laid down his life. He did not open his mouth before those who were slaughtering him. He was a sacrificial lamb of God. As John the Baptist declared, behold the lamb of God. And he is glorious in his humility. He is glorious in his willingness to lay down his life for his people. Wonderfully glorious. And of course he rose again the third day. The lamb who was slain. He looked as if he was slain because he was slain, as we see. But he rose again. And he is glorious for these things. And his blood is what saves us. The wonderful holiness seen then in this sacrifice of the lamb. But he is also the lion of Judah, as we saw. It's, he is glorious in his ability to protect his people. Again, I've never seen a wrathful lamb, and, and nor would it occur to me to ha- go to a lamb for protection. Lamb's not going to be able to protect me in times of trouble and difficulty, and when the enemies are closing in all around. But the lion is, and he is also the lion. He's also, as we just saw, this conquering king with a bow in his, his hand, the white horse going forth to conquer. He's both of these things. And he is altogether glorious in them. He is supremely glorious. And if there is one thing that I would wish that we could see in this sermon, if there is one thing that I wish that we could see in this scripture, is the glory of Jesus Christ. I want us, we are rightly, we have learned rightly to see the glory of Christ in the atonement, in the cross, in his laying down his life. We need to learn to see his greatness, his glory also in his second coming, in his judgment, his holiness displayed this time not in his grace, but in his justice and his mercy. We need to see the greatness and glory of Christ as he truly is. It says in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is, can we see that glory? Do we recognize the fullness of the glory of Christ in his second coming? 
Now, as everyone knows, the day of judgment includes the destruction of the present creation. We know that's part of the story. The physical creation will be destroyed. The sun and the moon will be darkened. The stars will fall and the mountains and islands will be moved out of their places. But interestingly, that is not the worst of it. As put on the lips of the kings of the earth and the great and the mighty and the rich as well as the poor, the slaves, every free and enslaved person. The worst of it, the thing that is most terrifying for them is this face, There's some face that they're hiding from they cannot bear to look upon. This face of the one who sits upon the throne. And they are so fearful of seeing that face, not only are they hiding in the caves and in the rocks, but that's not enough for them. They want the, the mountains themselves to fall down on them. They hide them from that face of the one who sits upon the throne of the Lamb come in his day of wrath and justice. Well, we need to think about this day. We need to think about the face that is coming, the face of the Lord. And so in this sermon on the day of the wrath of the Lamb, we have these three points. First, destruction in creation. Second, hide us from the face and third the wrath of the lamb destruction and creation hide us from the face the wrath of the lamb so first the destruction of the creation and I want us in a broad scope to see this as sort of a reverse of creation we know from Genesis 1 3 then God said let there be light and there was light that was the very first thing there was no there was darkness and there was light that was the beginning of creation and in somewhat reverse order, the first thing that happens in the, the day of judgment is darkness. Because A, the sun and moon are darkened. In verse 12, I looked and when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. Now, at first this sounds very much like an eclipse, doesn't it? When the moon passes in front of the sun... And so the sun itself is, is darkened and all you see then is the, is the dull reflection of the, the light coming from the earth back to the moon and it has this, this uh, blood red sort of appearance. And we might be mistaken that this is just an ordinary eclipse, but no, this is permanent. The sun and the moon have shone for the last time. As we know that in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no need for a source of light. Christ himself will be that. And they will never shine again. That's what was foretold in Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. These things that have God has put in place in creation for the good use for this time, for this world will be darkened and shine no more. And be the stars fall. Stars of heaven, verse 13, stars of heaven fell to the earth. So a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. 
the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. Now it is more than sufficient just to take this at absolute basic face value. It will be the end of the stars. They will be destroyed along with the rest of the physical creation. Jonathan Edwards was intrigued about the scientific problems of this because back then he knew his Newtonian science and he knew that light has a certain speed. It's a very, very high speed, but it's a finite value. And he wondered how it was possible, knowing that these stars are many, many, many hundreds and thousands and millions of light years away, how is it possible then that they can just all of a sudden fall to the earth? He, by the way, assumed it's not written, we don't have to take that to be the case, that in an exact sort of parallel to creation, it would take six days for the destruction to happen. That was just his idea. But in any case, we get the picture that this is a short amount of time that this is happening. And how is that possible? And he just said, well, obviously then, God is able to make these stars move at speeds much, much faster than light. He's not constrained by the, his, the laws that he created for his physical creation and I think that's a good reminder for us. And I think today we might even consider the reality that as the Lord stretched out the heavens, not just in the sense perhaps of the stars moving, but of the, the fabric of space it, it's itself being spread out. And so likewise, it just might be as we speak of the heavens being rolled up like a scroll, the idea of the fabric of space itself being receded and rolled up under the power of God. The point of these things, though, is not the details that we might speculate about along those lines. The point of this is to remind us of the greatness of God, both in creation and the destruction of his universe, doing those things which seem beyond the ability of anyone to do. So the stars are going to fall to earth. The whole sky is going to recede as a scroll. And then see, there's also a great earthquake. Back to something more earthly on earth. A great earthquake. Again, we might think this is just a greater than average normal sort of earthquake, but then we read that every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And you know what that tells us is that it is a worldwide earthquake. We've not seen any worldwide earthquakes. Even the most, the largest, the greatest magnitude of earthquakes are, are limited to a certain quadrant of the world. And this one will be different all around the world, the mountains and the islands are shaken and moved out of their place. Echoing to us again the idea of the worldwide flood of Noah's day. Just as the Lord used water to destroy the world in that day. And it wasn't a local flood constrained to one place worldwide. And so it is with this earthquake as a destruction of the things that he's made in judgment upon sin and sinners is complete. And again, reading from Isaiah 13, 13, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Because these things, just as the first coming of Christ was foretold, every detail of it foretold in advance, so it is with the second coming. We know, at least in its general uh, contours, what will happen it's told to us in scripture. Second, though, it's not just the destruction of the physical creation. Second, we have the words, hide us from the face. As we read in verse 15, And the kings of the earth are great men. 
the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Who are the people affected? It's everyone. Unlike the horsemen who were given over to a definite percentage, remember a fourth of all mankind, whether that's typological or real, we don't know. The point is it was constrained to a certain portion of the people, but not then. Then it's universal. Every slave and free man, every category of man that you can think of, they will be affected. It'll be the great. So often people are prone to thinking that achieving high status in this world shields them from its difficulties. And to some extent, maybe there's a grain of truth into it. You know, the the curse has brought to this world want. There's not always enough things to go around, food and and these days medical care and all the rest of the things. And if you have enough money, you can shield yourself just a little bit from these things, the effects of these things. But not forever. Not forever. Doesn't matter who they are. You can be the kings, uh, you can be the great ones, you can be. uh, It says, among other things, the rich. We know that the rich have such a great role. In some ways, they're more important than heads of state, the great billionaires of this earth. They have more money than many nations. But they're going to be affected just like everyone else. It will not mean anything then. All the things that you can possibly have in this world will not mean a single thing when the day of the Lamb's wrath comes. But on the other hand, it will be the low. All the slaves as well, both the slaves and the freemen of every description, they will also be affected. Again, some people think that their low status absolves them of responsibility. They say that really the only people who are responsible for this or that or the other are the leaders, the bosses, the ones who are in charge. And I'm just some lowly peon, just doing my job, taking orders, And moreover, I'm the victim of my low circumstances. I I grew up in such a deprived environment that I'm not responsible for my sin. And therefore, I'm not expecting the Lord to hold me accountable. But your low status isn't going to save you either. Your low status isn't going to shield you from the justice of the Lord on that day at all. No one can stand. That's the question. We were talking before about the question of how long, O Lord, is the call of the glorified saints? Disembodied, yes, they're just in their soul. They don't have their body, but glorified saints in heaven. And there's another question in Malachi 3.2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and like a launder's soap. No one is the answer. No one can stand. Do not be deceived. There is no one who could possibly stand in the day of the wrath of God. And so they say, fall on us to the rocks and to the mountains. Fall on us. And what could possibly be so terrible? What could possibly want them to say, fall on us to the mountains? You know, I think I used to think that this is they been recognizing of the greatness of the spiritual torments of hell that they just want to be annihilated and I think well there may be an element of truth and if so then the lesson here is that God isn't going to allow that 
There won't be any annihilation. It's not that you can somehow escape the justice and wrath of God just by ending your life. That's not going to happen. In fact, later on we'll, we'll see in Revelation 9, 6, in those days men will seek death and not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. It won't happen. But now I see that the main point, the main thing that the Lord is bringing to our attention is that they would do anything. They're not expecting that their life is going to be extinguished. They're not expecting that they'll have no more conscious existence. I think the main thing here is they just want to hide from the face. And their hiding in the caves isn't enough. Their hiding in the rocks isn't enough. They just want to hide from the face of the one who sits upon the throne. Now we know what that face looks like, don't we? It's a description we have in back in chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. What is the face? In a word, it's holy. It's his burning holiness, perfect, infinite holiness. Now that holiness is of great comfort to those who are made holy. We desire to look on his face. The greatest pleasure that we'll ever know is to gaze upon the the face of our glorified Savior in all of his perfection, perfect holiness, and grace to us. But on the other hand, it'll be a horror to sinners. You think even of Peter. Peter, of course, still on this earth, the old man still a part of him, sin hanging off of him. And in a moment of realization of his own sinfulness, along with a moment of revelation of who Jesus really was, gets a passing glimpse of this. And he says what in Luke 5, 8? Depart from me. I can't bear it. As the, the moment of his own sin and the holy God, he can't bear it. Depart from me. Well, vastly, vastly much more would be the case then for these sinners who have not been saved by faith in Christ, who have not been washed in the blood of the Lamb. There, no other light The sun has gone out, the moon has gone out, the stars have gone out, and now there is the one shining like the sun in all of his glory and beauty and flaming vengeance, and they with all their sin on them. And they say, please hide us. We cannot bear to look at his face. And that brings us then to the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now you might mistake these possibly as two different things. So the face of him who sits on the throne and, and the wrath of the Lamb. We want to uh, think that, um, that these ideas are utterly distinct, but it would seem that the worst of the wrath is indeed the face of the Lamb. People sometimes talk, and let me explain what I mean about that. People sometimes talk about hell as being the absence of God. Have you ever heard that? That hell is just the absence of God. Well, one popular author says it this way. Sinful behavior and sinful desires are like a fire that is broken out in your living room. Fire is never satisfied. It can't be allowed to smolder. It can't be confined to a corner. It will overtake you eventually. 
Sin is the same way. It never stays in its place. It always leads to separation from God, which results in intense suffering, first in this life and then in the next. And the Bible calls that hell. See how it goes. Sin leads to separation from God, and that's the essence of hell, just being apart from the source of good. And you ask, was there not some truth in that? And there may be an element of truth in that. The NIV says, for 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Well, taking a little closer look, and you know that I don't particularly recommend the NIV for such reasons, the NIV's rendering of 2 Thessalonians 1.9 hinges on a very, very common Greek word, apo. It just means from, and it could mean something like origin, where do you come from? Or it could mean opposition, away from, you know? So which is it? Well, considering that the reference, the reference here is to the punishment from the glory of his power, an attribute that is on display, of course, in hell, the attribute of his power, the glory of his power, it's from the glory of his power, then I think the authorized and the New King James have it absolutely right. They will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's the source of their punishment, the Lord and the glory of his power. And of course, more importantly, in Revelation itself, we have the matter settled, don't we, in Revelation 14. If anyone worships a beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb forever. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Those who worship the beast, and we know that the whole world goes after the beast, it's another way of saying those who don't follow God, those who follow another God, the God of this world, of Satan, they will be punished in the presence of the Lamb forever and ever. Well, I won't continue on and on this point. I just mean to say we need to be very careful about the way we describe things. Hell is not the absence of God. How could possibly you ever be away from the presence of God? God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. That is the definition of God. Now, very true, you can be cast out of the beneficent and benevolent presence of God. His smiling face, his joyful and glorious face, but you'll never be cast out of the presence of God, unfortunately, if you've not put your faith in Christ. Of all the things that you could possibly be fearful of, that is the one thing that is worse. It is not the physical destruction. It's not even in some sense. Everything, every other component, the worst of it is the face of Jesus Christ in his wrath. That's the worst of it. Thirdly and finally, the great day of wrath. It says in verse 17, the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Same question as was asked, wasn't it, in the Old Testament, who is able to stand? It's a day. We're no longer talking about a process, no longer talking about something that's happening over the centuries. We're talking about a very brief and constrained period of time, the day of judgment. 
And the question as we think of the larger contours of Revelation is, wait, we're only in Revelation chapter 6. We have a lot of chapters still to go. We have something like 15 chapters to go. How is it that we've already come to the end? Well, I think it's useful for us to understand that there is not a strict and, and, and straight uh, timeline in Revelation, but we sort of go through cycles. We go through most of the history of redemption, and then we go through it again in a different way. And so we're actually going to come to the end a couple or a few different times in the course of Revelation. So that's, I think, the way that this is. But it is a day of wrath. That's the business of the day of judgment. You see, the day of salvation, not just a single day in this case, the day of salvation remains each and every day. It's defined as a day of salvation each and every day from the the pouring out of, from the resurrection of Christ and also the pouring out of the Spirit until that last day. There's a day of salvation. It's the opportunity, the business at hand of Christ and his church, the main business, the main business at hand is the salvation of God's people. But then on that day, the day of judgment, the business at hand will be different. The business at hand will be judgment. You know, this was foretold from the very beginning. You recall the words of John the Baptist. He says, Of Christ you will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We sometimes stop there and we just focus on the fact, the wonderful reality of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and that when people come to Christ, the reason why they come to Christ is because Christ is baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. Well, if you keep going, the next verse says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff you will burn with unquenchable fire. Because those things are the work of Christ too, you see. And we see it in Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you see, that's the persistent picture of scripture no less than the fact that the Messiah would personally suffer and die to personally deliver his people from their sins no less is a picture that he will personally pour out his wrath on the day of judgment see as I think has been mentioned before you can't separate completely the idea in a fallen sinful world you cannot separate the idea of judgment and salvation they come together the reason why we're saved is because God judged, he poured out wrath on Christ. Because our sins being imputed to him on the cross, there is judgment. And therefore there is salvation. And on the day of judgment, the reason why there is salvation for God's people is because there is judgment for God's enemies. The two things work together. So the judgment, so the business throughout all this time has been bringing people to saving faith, building up the kingdom of God, then the business will be of judgment. And of course then this beginning proceeds on to eternal hell. And I think then we have to ask as we're considering the wrath of God, what makes it so terrible, what makes it so fearful? We've mentioned of course the face of the Lamb. But maybe it would be useful to consider a contrast with heaven because we have to think, why are these these kings of the earth, these great men, why are they so fearful? And why aren't people fearful now? Why is it? 
maybe we should exert ourselves just a little bit to understand what's so terrible about the wrath of God. So what's hell? Well, consider a contrast with heaven. Heaven is the display case, if you will, of God's grace. We'll never really get over it. It's just too much to take in. We'll always be amazed by it. Because God is going to set himself to maximize the joy of his people. He will exert himself to the fullest extent he can to put on a display of his attributes of goodness and generosity and grace. And along with the infinite wisdom, the infinite knowledge, and the infinite power to pull it off. It, it boggles the mind, doesn't it, what, how much joy he could possibly create for his saints in heaven. Unlimited joy in our souls, and after the resurrection, unlimited joy in our bodies, up to the very capacity that he assigns according to his sovereign grace. It'll be like a beautiful dream that's actually come true, and it never ends. And the greatest of all these things are the great object of our love, the great object of our desire, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and all of this shining like the sun in its warmth and brilliance and beauty. But on the other hand then, contrast those things, just flip them around, what is hell? It's the display case of God's wrath. And I don't think we'll ever quite get over it either. Because we'll always be amazed by the depth and the perfection of God's justice. And there I think God will set himself to maximize the anguish of sinners. He will exert himself to the fullest extent. He will put on a display, as it were, of his attributes of justice and wrath, along with the infinite knowledge, wisdom, and power in order to carry it out. No one can possibly fathom just how much anguish and pain those who are in hell will experience. Unlimited anguish in the soul, and after the resurrection, unlimited pain in the body, up to the very capacity assigns him according to his sovereign justice. Remember, it's not all the same. People get as they deserve. And it won't be a dream, it'll be a nightmare coming real that never ends. And what's the very worst of it? As we already have seen, the very worst of it will be that great object of the revulsion, the one they hated on earth, the one they will forever hate, and the one that they wish like anything they could escape the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, appearing to them like the surface of the sun in searing fire and unbearable flames. Yet they somehow remain in eternal darkness, receiving none of those good things, but all those terrible things. Now, I, I do hope that a prospect frightens you if you're outside of Christ. It certainly will frighten the kings of the earth, the great, the strong, the rich, every slave and every free on that day. And the sad thing is that they seem to think nothing of it at the moment. But they ought to consider that frightful reality. See, the only difference between now and then they're seeing it coming. The only difference between those hearing this message now and those on that day is that you still have an opportunity to repent. And they do not. When Christ comes, it will be too late. And so the great and first application 
for those who are not believers is to repent. Repent. You do not lack any information, you see. You have all the information to deal with that those kings of the earth and the great and the mighty as well as the poor will have on that day. It has been described to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ, his inspired and errant word. It will absolutely come to pass. Just like every detail of Christ's first appearing was according to prophecy, so it will be. The only difference is you still have the opportunity to repent. And the Lord wants you to do that. Ezekiel 33 says, Turn, turn from your evil ways, or why should you die? Turn, repent. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and receive salvation and forgiveness of sins. And second, if you don't need to repent, and of sin sense, of course, we always need to repent, don't we, of our sins? I think, by the way, as a, a Christian who's put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when I think about hell, when I think of the day of judgment, it makes me want to repent of my sins a little bit more, doesn't it? Sin doesn't seem so palatable when I consider the, the searing wrath of God on that day. I don't want to go out from here and violate the commandments of God. It makes me want to live holy. Not out of some servile fear, but of a reminder of the way my Lord really is. But even if you don't need to repent, then you do need to worship. And I think that's the application then for Christians. We need to worship Christ as he really is. And he is both this lion and this lamb. You know, you think, of course people are going to respect a Genghis Khan, aren't they? They understand the terrible ferocity of his wrath. But who's going to love him with tender affection? The answer is no one. And on the other hand, who is going to bow down in awestruck admiration mixed with the right kind of fear before the sort of liberal, effeminate, long-haired Jesus that I I speak of in those, those portraits which violate the second commandment? Who's going to do that? No one. There's nothing awe striking about him. There's nothing fear inducing. And I want to say, and Jesus Christ is the perfection of both of these aspects. He is both the lion and the lamb. He was this tender lamb who was slain for my sins, who opened not his mouth to those who slaughtered him. He is also the lamb whose wrath causes the strongest men to cry out in fear. And I hope that you're saying it's hard for me to take that in. I hope that it is difficult for you to put those pieces together because that's the point. That's what makes Christ so very glorious. He is something that no man could ever be in this line and this lamb. We, of course, in our sinfulness, fixate on some things rather than others. But Christ is perfect in every way. And one day we shall be like him. Sometimes people wonder how on earth, how on earth could it be that we would be okay with this outpouring of wrath on the great day of judgment? Or that we in in heaven, how could it be that it would be okay for us to consider that there are people in hell? And the answer is because we'll be like Christ. The answer is we'll be like the lion and the lamb, perfectly tender and perfectly holy and just as well. 
So, think of Jesus then. Think of Jesus living among us in humility, living with his disciples in loving friendship. Beautiful pictures there. You know, the picture of John at the Last Supper, reclining, leaning against Jesus in affectionate friendship, like one of the lads here might do with one of their older friends. The picture of Jesus taking up a little child in his arm and saying, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Picture of Jesus speaking to the girl who died, saying, Talitha Kumai, little girl, wake up. And she does. This beautiful picture of Christ and his love, tender love for his people and these children. And on that day, he will come with the most fearsome wrath. And anger laying waste to those who have lived in rebellion from the day they were born. Exercising vengeance on those who have opposed him and have persecuted his people. Because remember, this is in answer to a prayer, isn't it? How long, O Lord, before you judge them? And he will pour out his wrath on these people. Like Matthew 21 you remember the story the the vine dressers they had leased this vineyard and is a picture of Israel and last of all he sent his son to him saying he will respect my son but when the vine dressers speaking of the Pharisees and other religious leaders saw the son they said among themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and seize him his inheritance so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him speaking of how they killed Christ Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? That's the question, and the answer is, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. And Jesus said, yeah, you've got it. You're right. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's what I'm going to do when I return. I'm going to destroy them miserably. He says also, in verse 44 of that chapter, Matthew 21, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken. You see, there must be a humble repentance, a humble renunciation of our own works. No one carries on in their pride. Either we, stum- we, we fall on the, 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 the stone of Christ, stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, in humility and receive. We renounce our own works, trying to earn our salvation, and we humbly receive of him and follow him. Or ounce. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Who is that stone? Jesus says, that's me. Next time you see me, he says to them, I will be destroying you wicked men miserably. I will be grinding you to powder. What do we say to that? We say, behold the lamb. Behold the wrath of the lamb. Does that make you worship Christ? At this moment, I'm talking about singing. Nothing to do with singing. Does that make you, in your heart, worship Christ? Do you see the greatness of Christ? Do you see the holiness, the perfect, inexorable, infinite holiness of Christ? Perfect justice, perfect mercy, perfect love, perfect wrath, perfectly together. Do you see it? Worship Him in His holiness. Third, finally, and briefly... We must remember it's not long. 
So last week the answer to the, the martyrs was to be patient, to wait a little while longer. But we should be reminded that the time is not long. The one moment they say it and the next moment the day has already come. And that's why at the very end, second to last verse of this book, Revelation 22.20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. See these events, the sixth seal, they're the answer to the prayers of God's people. The Old Testament, you know, they always prayed. We want to see the Messiah. We want him to come, and we pray that he would, and finally he did. And now we pray. We want to see him return. We want to see justice done. We want to see the work completed. And soon enough, he will return. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, but the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. How long? The answer is not long. We must remember these things. Let us pray. God and Heavenly Father, we this day remember our faults. We remember our sins. We remember not only the sins of the usual sort, but also, Lord, of continually thinking in some sort of lopsided, unbalanced way about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, help us to believe the truth. Help us to receive him as he truly is and to worship him in the glory of his holiness and not some distortion but of this one who is both the lion and the lamb. And Lord, we pray that those who are outside of Christ would, would receive these things as they truly are, a warning in your great goodness and in your patience and your long-suffering that they have been given an advanced picture of that last day. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to repent. And Lord, we pray that we would not grow impatient Though in some sense we cry out, how long? But Lord, we know the answer is not long. And so, Lord, help us to live our lives in light of these things. We ask it in Jesus' name.